sounds like hell. So we're going to stop it there, Rob. Yeah, that, that's not working out. Hi, Iron Radio listeners. This is IronRadio.org. I'm Robert Fortress Fortney, uh, former competitive bodybuilder, former editor at MuscleMag, and um, powerlifter. Hey, and good afternoon, everyone. This is Charles Staley. I am creator of the Escalating Density Training System, uh, author of Muscle Logic, and I'm also a competitive weightlifter. And this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, competitive powerlifter, and now Highland Games athlete and founder of LiftForHope.org. He just likes to wear the kilt. I do, I do. I'm sexy in a dress. Uh, that was irresponsible. Oh. <laughs> I can't keep doing that. Uh, hopefully no one else is wearing a, a skirt today as we... Uh, proceed through the interview but hey guys I, I, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a fun interview today we've got uh, we've got Brett Jones and Greg Cook with us and uh, the reason they're with us aside from just being all around great guys is that uh, they have fairly recently authored um, a, a product package that involves a manual and a two disc DVD called kettlebells from the ground up and the entire package revolves around mastering an exercise called the get-up, and uh, that's pretty cool stuff. I, I don't want to go too much into the the bios, guys, but uh, let's leave it. Uh, let's leave. It. Suffice it to say that uh, you know most of you guys know Gray Cook from the functional movement screen, uh, which is one of the best assessment tools, if not the best assessment tool that you can get as a trainer or a coach uh, to to kind of prevent. Uh, unnecessary resistance training injuries, and I, I can't think of anything that's, that's more important than that. And, uh, you all will know Greg, uh, uh, Brett Jones from his work as an RKC and for his kettlebell mastery, and he's all over the Internet. Uh, these guys can both be Googled, and you can kind of learn more on your own, but uh, uh, um, Brett is, is pretty heavily credentialed, not only in the uh, kettlebell world, but also just in the whole exercise uh, science world. So uh, I want to kind of skip by that a little bit so that we can talk about the get-up. So, um, Brett, let me start with you. What What is a get-up? I want to know a couple of things. What is a get-up, and should we refer to it as a Turkish get-up or just a get-up? And why should people be doing this exercise? Okay. Well, first, great to be here, and uh, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, I guess in its simplest terms, the get-up is quite simply – getting up off the ground holding a weight. Uh, it's been done with barbells, dumbbells. Uh, I certainly feel that the kettlebell offers a unique uh, benefit to the get-up because of the thick handle offset center of weight, literally kind of guiding your shoulder and body into different positions because of that offset center of gravity. So that's the simple description. <laughs> um, and, you know, when Pavel put out uh, Enter the Kettlebell and he described the get-up in there, he basically said get up any way you see fit, any, any way you can safely get up. What Gray and I did was broke it down into um, really seven essential steps where you can learn a lot about your movement symmetry and stability symmetry from side to side by progressing uh, through those steps. Uh, whether to call it a Turkish get-up or a get-up, um, classically, um, the version that we use uh, really kind of came to us through the Turkish wrestling tradition, some of the exercises they would use there. So in classical terms, it's called a, a Turkish get-up. Um, calling it a get-up was just um, shorter and, okay. uh, <laughs> and easier for me to handle. So 
Okay, I just didn't know if you guys were like boycotting the Turks or if there was something going oh, no. on there. But yeah, so so but but the the seven step uh, uh, technique that that you guys outline so well in this manual and in the DVDs, the, the, which I think of as kind of a modern technique, and this is how most people know the exercise. But historically, if you went back a hundred years ago, let's say, is this how the exercise was done, or was there a lot more variation in how it was performed? And is the technique that you guys uh, delineate, is this kind of a new modern technique, or is this the way it's always been done? Uh, it's a bit of a new technique. Um, and, I mean, classically, yes, the get-up has a lot of variation in it. Uh, like I said, with barbells and no-hands get-ups, where you, you get up without using the hands at all. And there's there's a ton of variety available within the movement. Uh, when Gray uh, and I... You know, first when I first looked at the get-up, it was mainly just a shoulder stability exercise, and so you used it to help uh, learn how to keep your shoulder stable while your body was moving through a really tremendous range of motion. And then uh, Dr. Mark Chang showed us what he called the tactical get-up, and he called it that because the high bridge position—that's one of the seven steps that we outline looked like a uh, martial arts throw that was in one of the forms that he uh, teaches and, and participates in. And so we looked at that, and Gray took one look at it and said, hmm, that'll help us clear the hips, because most people are quad and hip flexor dominant and lack full hip extension anyway. Yep. And so by putting the high bridge into the getup, we, now we had an exercise that would help clear the hips and the shoulders of restrictions and asymmetries. And so that's really the direction we took it was uh, more of a self, um, self-screen self or self-assessment. Uh, yeah, yeah. uh, so huh. that so was where Gray, I came from. Gray, you're a physical therapist, and most physical therapists I know treat shoulder uh, complaints through like Blackburn exercises, the, the Y's and the T's and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, where where did your interest, or, or maybe I should say, how did you first hook up with the with the Get Up and with Brett, and, and where does your interest come from for uh, for this exercise? Well, funny, funny you should mention Tab Blackburn. I used to lecture with Tab and Mike Boyd and a bunch of other guys on the physical therapy circuit, and Tab was one of the first guys to show us, you know, hey, uh, these are some of the patterns that really make that rotator cuff fire and you know the rotator cuff is the core of the shoulder and and we need those core muscles not just firing a lot but firing first and uh so tab identified some neat little patterns that make the rotator cuff fire but what happened was sometimes we do those patterns with certain people and then the rotator cuff fires in the exercise but they still don't use it in authentic movements so the whole point is if we make your muscles work correctly during exercise, but there's no carryover into the other uh, patterns that you wish to compete and participate in, then the utility of the exercise go down simply more as a uh, energy expenditure drill and not so much as a reprogramming maneuver. And the the neat thing about the Turkish getup, we didn't we didn't try to redefine the move. I think the move is is classic. The problem is. The exercise hasn't so much changed the culture has. If you look at USA Today, I think it was either today or yesterday, I just got emailed the article, the, the intake criteria in the U.S. military continues to have to be lowered 
simply so we can get enough people in. And that's something that's not new. It's been happening since, uh, uh, since about the 50s or 60s. And so, you know, back when the Turkish getup was a staple of the strongman, I think it was used two ways. Number one, to develop basic mobility and stability. And two, if you can't own these patterns, don't try the big strength moves. Now, what I saw in the Turkish getup, uh, I think what happened was you just grab a kettlebell and get up. But now today, the way we move, some of us are bench pressers with tight shoulders. Some of us have great extension on one hip, not so much the other. Some of us have lost our T-spine rotation to muscle hypertrophy. Now we're just getting up and we're bringing all of our restrictions into the get-up and using these shortcuts just to avoid fixing ourselves. Whereas if we were a young athlete possessing full mobility patterns and somebody handed us a kettlebell and we were to pattern the get-up, our body would quickly find the best angles and maneuvers, and the get-up would refine us simply because we weren't working around our restrictions. Today's athlete comes to the get-up with restrictions and then finds a path where they don't have to confront them. And so what Brett and I said is, no, 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 we're going to put some guardrails here. You have to confront your restrictions. Otherwise, you're going, to, you're going to pour concrete on them, you're going to lay hypertrophy on them, and you're going to own them the rest of your life. So before those restrictions become part of your strength platform, let's see if we can grab you 10 more degrees of hip extension or 15 of T-spine rotation or get those shoulders back just a little bit more. It's, it's, it's money because now the stability system can function reflexively, and you don't have to think about side planking your way through life. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's <laughs> that, was, that was so good. By the way, if you're listening in and like, great, you are so good. I mean, I just got to say, it, it, for everybody who's listening in, if your interest and your curiosity is now peaked, then you know what it's like to to read this manual that these guys wrote. Because uh, uh, I, I just put out a review, I think, to my to my uh, mailing list recently, and I I kind of said that, hey, I've been on the fence about this exercise for a long time until I got this manual, and. Uh, you guys are very convincing. You make a very good, good case. We're we're just getting started, and you've already made a great case for the for the exercise for sure. Well, that means a lot coming coming from you guys, and, and it is an honor to be able to just to just bounce this topic around with you because, you know, each of you doesn't just discuss exercise and 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 weight training and physical performance. You actually do it, and and that's why why I think some physical therapist disappoint me and yeah I'm, I'm throwing my own profession under the bus is because you know they'll they'll talk about how this weight training technique is unsafe or they'll bash kettlebells never touched one they, the closest yeah. they've come is a magazine that's got one in it and they're like oh i don't like that you know and and i, I really can't can't condone that and that's why you know i pulled my stocking cap down and, and threw the rkc in as much cognito as i could because i said i don't want to be great cook this weekend you know, I'm going to empty out my cup and, and yeah. fill it back up. And, you know, I, I didn't expect Brett to make me do push-ups in the corner every time I took a pee <laughs> break, but that happened too. So. <laughs> oh, that's it was with fun. much love. <laughs> well, hey, you know, what's kind of very cool about uh, – I'm just looking at the manual as we're, as we're kind of talking to you guys here. But one thing that's very cool is that not only do you uh, break this movement down into seven distinct steps in incredible detail, but you also, and and this has always been kind of a beef of mine, that whenever you see instructional videos for any type of physical skill, 
they always show the ideal performance. They show some athletic stud like doing the movement perfectly, and they say, okay, this is how you do it. And then you go to do it, and it doesn't work out that way, and then you're left in the lurch. But what you guys do that I just think is, is so smart is that you have drills uh, for every step of, of the progression so that if you're having problems on the third, uh, on the third uh, step, you've got drills for that. Uh, and, and you can work through that. So um, I don't know. Brent, do you want to talk about those a little bit? Because this is where, this is stuff that I've never seen in any of the literature. I've never seen this on video before. You know, if you, get, if you have a problem and you can't, you can't get your foot through, you know, um, what do you do? And you guys have answers for that. Well, um, we went through and we addressed the, the manual from two standpoints. The uh, person at home that doesn't have a trainer, and we wanted to also talk to the trainers who were going to use this exercise with their clients. And so we threw in the tips for the pro, and we also recognized that one of the most frustrating things as um, as a client or an athlete is when a coach uh, wants to uh, correct your form simply by telling you to do it different. You know, you, you, that was wrong, do it again. Well, that was wrong, do it again. That gets really frustrating for the client and the coach. And so what we recognize is that there are certain physical restrictions that will block you out of your form. Um, you know, I think that's famous on the golf driving range when the golf pro says, well, your, your swing was off. It's like, well, yeah, I, I know. Well, can, can you help me with that? And so, you know, in when you run into a problem with one of the steps, we try to narrow it down to a few potential problem areas. Here's how you clear that. Uh, regain some spine extension. Open up the hip flexors. Um, additional drills for T-spine mobility and things of that nature. And uh, we didn't want to just tell you to do it again. We wanted to help you clear the roadblocks and make sure that you had access to all the necessary movement patterns that then make the movement possible. That's, that's just so cool. And uh, an another aspect of this, um, of this offering that I wanted to uh, bring up that, that that I really enjoyed is that you've got you're paying attention to the to the end user, but also the the coach. So you've got not only directions about how to do the exercise itself, but how to coach the exercise and and how to cue your your clients. Um, and so I want people listening to know that even if you have been doing the get up, uh, Brett and Gray show you really great ways. To, to be an, a more effective coach of the exercise. So uh, I think that that's, uh, that's cool stuff. Well, well thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's fun uh, to put it out there. Uh, and, you know, five years ago, hardly anybody knew what a get-up was. Now we argue over the right way to do it. So uh, yeah, I think uh, we'll, we'll call that progress. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, so if... if if people um, if people purchase this product, by the way, I've been uh, I've, I've neglected to mention that that you can pick this up on DragonDoor.com and and you'll see that uh, posted prominently over there. I just want to let people know uh, where to pick these materials up uh, if if you're interested. But most of the people listening in today are lifters, whether competitive or recreational. They're involved in powerlifting or weightlifting or or uh, strongman or or Highland Games and so forth and so on. So. Um, 
can either of you give me a sense of how to integrate the getup into their training? And let's say I'm imagining a lot of people listening right now have typical chronic shoulder issues that kind of always flare up when you're benching or, in my case, snatching. How do you integrate this in? Is this part of the warm-up? Do you devote a specific workout to the get-up? Um, do do, can you do segments of the get-up? Like how, how would you integrate this into a weekly program? Let me – let me. Uh, I know Brett's probably getting ready to give us a, a great answer on the program. Let me give you one piece of background information that I think is just absolute money for the, the lifter, uh, whether they're competitive or just uh, recreational. We just got through doing an unbelievably large research pilot, and the whether you're working on your get-up patterns or your functional movement screen patterns, it, it's really immaterial. Cleaning up a pattern, getting that scapula back, getting your pelvis under you, um, getting your core to do the right thing, getting your hip in extension, this is all what we would consider corrective maneuvers. We're not conditioning to make these things happen. We're actually correcting the, the motor program, the mind-body connection. Some people don't have weak glutes. They just don't know how to fire them, or the hip can't get in a position to make that natural trigger reflex stabilization work. We just took the Atlanta Falcons through movement screening. Some of their corrective exercise was these Turkish get-up steps. This is the thing that emerged from that study. None of these guys specifically did drills for their core. Whichever their issue was, whether it was their left shoulder mobility problem, the fact that they couldn't pu you know, push up with that right leg behind them, it doesn't really matter what their problem was. When they stayed right at that difficult area and owned it, they didn't try to get on up. They didn't try to struggle through it. They didn't try to turn it into a lift. They owned the pattern. They got their kata right. When we revisited their movement screen, their core strength and stability went up, which told us the best way to get your core back in the game is not so much to exercise your core. It's to remove the greatest movement pattern compromise you have so that that authentic reflex stabilization could come back in. So for some, some of the lifters out there, they try this program, and they're like, oh, my God, I'm horrible you would actually emerge a month later a better lifter by doing this and not going heavy for one month. And I know that's sacrilege, and I'll probably get my house spray painted for saying that, but we have seen this happen with our NFL platoons time and time again where we back off the struggle, we clean up the movement, and all that stability we were trying to consciously uh, you know, boil up just comes automatically with 10 extra degrees of hip extension or a little bit better uh, breathing pattern when you get your shoulders back. So the neat thing is focusing on the kinesiology may not be the best way to reset your motor programs. Going and, and, and getting all those movement patterns, you don't have to turn this into Cirque du Soleil, but you've you got to be able to clear that high bridge. You've got to be able to roll the press. You've got to be able to come up and do a nice square platform in your half-kneeling stance. Own these positions. Don't worry about the core. It'll be right behind there. As soon as the movement comes, it resets. So having said that, this can become your entire workout for one month, and don't think you're going to get weaker by not going heavy. We've, we've proven that you won't if these problems are a great issue. It may also simply be your movement prep. 
what we find when people own this thing is they stretch less. They, they, they dedicate the same amount of time to prep, but now they're not doing 10 minutes of stretching because they're actually authentically using the movements that they were just going to passively explore. So, and, uh, and clearly, you know, active, dynamic forms of mobility training, I think, will beat static, passive forms any day of the week. So, oh, when you when you whether you go back four thousand years and look at yoga or look at the martial arts kata, uh, none of that stuff is static. With with every part yeah. of your body that's yielding or stretching, there's another part of your body that's stepping up and maintaining the integrity. So, for sure, for sure. Brett, your thoughts on programming? Um, well, like Gray said, and, and I alluded to it earlier, if if you're fighting a movement restriction, um, all the coaching in the world won't get you out of it. And I know there's people um, around the industry who have now gone the other direction in saying that, uh, well, you can just coach people out of their dysfunctions. And uh, that's really not the case to a large extent. So getting into these patterns and clearing the movement restrictions can be a, a huge step forward for all of the clients. Now, as you go through the getup, you're going to go through it without weight first. You're going to know where you run into restrictions. So initially... Programming the get-up becomes working on those steps that presented an issue. And that could be working on your breathing. It could be putting in neck rotations and um, shoulder rotations, kettlebell rotations at a few key steps. Um, it could be working exclusively on getting to the elbow uh, without any compensations. Once you start to clear those steps, now you enter the next stage of programming where you can start to run this as a little bit of a conditioning exercise to um, really bring your strength and stability up. I spent a significant portion of time um, doing nothing but 16-kilo get-ups. And I've done get-ups with as much as a 60-kilo kettlebell. So a 16-kilo kettlebell is obviously not heavy for me, but I came out of that uh, pressing the 48-kilo kettlebell um, so I didn't lose anything as a result of, of doing that's that. That's amazing. You, uh, you're a strong guy. I mean, a 60-kilo get-up, and, and on the, on, we've never met in person, Brett, but uh, you, you're not a huge guy, are you? No, sir. No, sir. I mean, uh, right now I'm probably running around 190 right now. Um, okay. So that, that's, yeah. that's, that's a massive amount of weight for a get-up. That's pretty crazy. Uh, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. I, I happened to be at a friend's house who had a in in Budapest, actually, uh, Hungary, and he had a 60 kilo kettlebell, and uh, so I just, of course, I had to play with it. But um, so you'll you'll enter different stages of your programming based on where you are. Um, if you're just learning to get up, you're going to spend more time on some corrective drills. As you make those corrections and you begin to get that beautiful strength that Kayla Stenos flowing, then you're going to use it as either a movement prep or a workout for the day. I mean, this can be just a great, if you've had a, a big powerlifting workout on a Monday and you're taking Tuesday kind of as a light day, get-ups are just what the doctor ordered to um, lube the whole body and get everything um, opened up and moving again. Hey, Brett, both of you guys have used a term, and, and at the risk of putting too fine a point on it, I just want to make sure that people understand what mm -hmm. you guys mean when you say clearing. You talk about clearing the hip or clearing the shoulder. What do you guys mean specifically by that? Well, it's, it's the, in my mind, it's the ability to hit all of, if we're speaking specifically to the getup, 
it's the ability to hit all of these positions without restriction and without okay. strain. Um, so when when we talk about clearing the hips, if you come into the get-up lacking full hip extension, we want you to regain full hip extension, and we're going to consider the hips to have been somewhat uh, cleared of that restriction. So that's kind of the, the mindset that I have on it. Uh, very cool. I, I'm still I'm still stunned at the 60 kilo. I saw you. I, I believe on the on the video you're doing, if not if I'm not mistaken, about a hundred pound get up, and uh, it looked like nothing. So, uh, good stuff. Oh, Charles, I wanted to add one thing in. You, I, I don't know if we perfectly answered your shoulder question, but if you'll uh, notice right there in the front of the manual, while you're laying flat on your back, we have you just go through some rotation drills with both your neck and shoulder. And as a physical therapist, and in nowhere near uh, the weightlifting feats of Brett. I just sort of walk around and pick up a little bit of stuff every now and then. But my my point to anybody who's experiencing a little bit of shoulder uh, issue, if you also perceive uh, some general stiffness or tightness in your neck or even realize maybe if somebody's kind enough to put a video camera on you when you're going through your get-up that your, that your neck muscles are really firing quite a bit, um, the best way I've ever done to, to clear shoulders, and I, I I get to work with some of the best shoulders in the world, is I clear the neck first. That shoulder, um, you know, is a beautiful array of light bulbs, and if all the light bulbs on a Christmas tree go out at the same time, I'm not going to assume that every one of those bulbs arbitrarily burn out simultaneously. I'm going to take it right back to the plug, to the fuse box, to the, to the power source, and so if the neck's not clear, if the neck is not nice and mobile and you're, or you're using a lot of strain in your neck, give yourself a little gift. Get get with a soft tissue person. Get with somebody who can get you just a little bit of neck motion back, and you'll find that your shoulders in many cases were never that bad to begin with. It was your neck that was in compromise. And you get to any fighter, and they'll show you, I can put your head in certain positions and render your shoulder strength nothing. And mm -hmm. And so... Not much of what we see in a strong man's shoulder that seems to not be optimal is inhibition, not weakness. It's when your your pec minor can't let go because it's being used as one of your core muscles instead of one of your scapular stabilizers. And the neck is a good representation if that harmony is back. And so we start at the head, neck, and shoulder for a specific reason in the get-up. And so if you notice just some tightness that doesn't work itself out, um, have that looked at because it, it may only be a two-week sidetrack in your training, but it will offer um, unbelievable rewards on the back. So it's not just a shoulder. It's a shoulder-neck complex in many cases. Good tip. Well, Jay Bell, if you're listening, uh, you know what I need you to do tomorrow. So <laughs> but, uh, given, given that I have, like, some various shoulder issues uh, as time goes on. So, uh, well, uh, Phil, should we uh, hit the topic of the day? Yeah. Yep. I think we're about halfway through, so we'll keep it. Royalty-free music. What would we do without it? 
Well, uh, for those who listen in uh, every week, they know that we have a topic of the day. Usually we go about halfway through. And uh, this this week's topic is Gray Cook's hair. And uh, uh, Brett, are you with me on this? So, I mean, what the, what is the deal, Gray, with the hair? Like, how can I ask how old you are? Um, you talking about the hair in the video or the hair I got right now? No, just your hair. <laughs> I mean, frankly, Gray, we're freaked out. Okay, aren't you like almost fifty years old? Uh, not quite, not quite. But uh, I live in a, a very uh, probably uh, southern central Virginia. Uh, mullets are still pretty good here, dude. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, Brett, are you on board with me about this? I mean, if you if you see the uh, if you see the, uh, the the kettlebells from the ground up manual, I mean, Brett's the guy with no hair, and Gray's the guy with the hair. So that's how you tell them apart. But uh, I, I'm just personally <laughs> freaked out. I just don't know how. You, I don't know. Is this? Do you attribute this to a supplementation program or? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I'm gonna, it's the Samson. It's the whole Samson thing. Uh, <laughs> Final story. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just a little bit weaker without it, but here's the deal. Uh, uh, my wife and I got married almost four years ago, and uh, she said, uh, "Let's let's go long hair on you." And I'm like, oh, "Okay." So I, I you know, I just, it's just pretty much uh, a hot blonde tells you to do something, and and you know, you do it. So no, that makes that makes all the sense in the world. Hey, if you can do it, do it. I have no hair myself, so that's why I'm. I'm frankly bitter about it but uh, anyway we're, we're just goofing on you gray that's not we're, we don't really have a topic we want to get into some listener questions so uh phil you want to feed some of those to us yeah <laughs> all right um I've got a couple questions for you guys okay uh mark in minneapolis minnesota do you ever use fms for non-athletes um he's thinking about his wife here 100 percent, absolutely yes yeah um if 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 someone has physical problems, they actually have pain with their exercise program or something, then then we don't advocate the screen because you already know something's wrong, and so you you owe them a little bit deeper assessment of what's going on. But if somebody's basically athletic or not, if they're if they're an, an active person and thinking I'd like to you know pick it up and exercise or or do something and exercise, then really the movement screen's not going to go through any patterns that a a pretty functional workout wouldn't explore anyway. It's just going to do it body weight without load. So by all means, uh, we have had numerous populations that are not they're they're considered active but not athletic. Um, you know, going going through the movement screen. And the funny thing is, our break point uh, there's a 21 point rating scale on the movement screen. The break point seems to be um, equal to or less than 14. And uh, we just had 934 cadets go through uh, Marine Officer Candidate School in Quantico, and uh, they were movement screened. And with absolutely no corrective intervention, uh, we just let them do what they were going to do anyway. They hit basic training. They hit the wall. They hit long hikes and heavy runs and heavy packs and hand-to-hand combat. And the group of uh, cadets that basically was equal to or less than 14 on the movement screen was more than twice as likely to drop out of basic for non-physical reasons and physical reasons. We don't know what the non-physical reasons was, but we see the same thing in the NFL. And when we go to, um, you know, non-athletic venues, we see it as well. As a matter of fact, we we worked with a, a fitness chain one time to do a movement screen on client day one intake or just run them through the machines on client day one intake. And for some reason, 
doing the movement screen on that day one created a real opportunity for some, some pretty profound conversations between the client and the trainer, and client retention doubled just because they took interest in the individual and didn't program them into weight loss, muscle toning, cardio, whatever. So the, the movement screen, whether you use it to become a little more uh, familiar with your subject matter or whether you use it to manage a team or, or, or a group of non-athletes, it seems to be just a baseline appraisal of movement quality before we start measuring the quantities. Well, and I think maybe the, the another way to put it quickly is that this is a fundamental human movement screen. These are these are movements that we should have access to as bipedal human beings. Um, there's nothing mag magical about being an athlete and going through the movement screen. Um, this is to check fundamental movement, um, which all all of us should have access to in some degree. Yeah, we say it, it's not sport specific; it's species specific. So uh, if you fit that definition, <laughs> come on over. <laughs> I'm not sure if Bill fits the definition, but we'll we'll get that. <laughs> He's on the fringe. I probably score at two, but I haven't quit trying yet. So, <laughs> um, okay, Andy Lomax in Boston, Massachusetts. How risky to the C spine is a one-arm strict press overhead? Uh, if choosing this overhead, no. Oof, sorry. How risky to the C spine is a strict one-arm overhead pressing? If choosing this over a push press. Assuming the neck is kept neutrally aligned, not flexed to the side. Um, I've been teaching uh, kettlebells, been involved in kettlebells for over eight years, been teaching for over seven years. Got a few, you know, several hundred to a few thousand people under my belt now. And uh, one of the primary moves is the one and two kettlebell military press. If military pressing, overhead pressing bothers your neck, you need to get that cleared, but you also need to clear the T-spine, look at your scapular stability, and get your military press form checked. Um, if performed well, it should present no risk or very little risk to the cervical spine. Um, the effort um, is really if you're pressing from your lat, if you're pressing from your armpit, uh, the neck will be pretty relaxed through the entire press anyway. And one area where people will get, the Russians used to refer to it as getting bit in the neck, is when people uh, tilt their head back and try to look at the weight um, by extending the neck during the press. And that can run you into a situation where you'll, you'll impinge a facet joint or, or cause a problem that way. But if the neck is held uh, in a pretty uh, steady position, um, you can kind of peek at the bell through the corner of your eye but not turn your neck towards it. I've seen very, very little risk. The other thing I can add to that is if you watch somebody press a weight, they get it up but with some degree of struggle, and that natural inward curve of their neck flattens out, that means they were drawing and pulling the spine out of its neutral to do that. And and you may see that as you're training young athletes or whatever, and I was glad to hear that the push press was mentioned because yes. sometimes with younger athletes, what we will do is take a weight that may present a, a slight degree of difficulty or bad form with a push press, let them go ahead and cheat it with their legs, get that weight up, but then own it at the top, 
and then use that eccentric lowering to really make their shoulder more stable and, and get a little back load in there. And the funny thing is, when we take a, a respectable weight and press it up, concentrically, the novice or the, the person who's doing it for, say, say, tennis or overhead sports, when they press it up, the neck will actually come out of position. But if they push press it up and then own it at the top and then bring it down in a very slow, controlled fashion, the neck stays in a good neutral position. So sometimes um, when I'm doing the, the, the pressing movements, surely for athleticism, trying to help athletes incorporate not only a sound shoulder but also learn how to link their leg, core, and, and movement to their shoulder, we'll let them push press it up because it doesn't present an issue to the neck and then own it down, which really reinforces or backloads that stability. But if there's already a neck problem, just like Brett said, or a T-spine problem, Best not to press around it. Best just to fix it and and then and then get right back to work. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, while while we're on the topic of necks, Chad Fenton in Austin, Texas. Uh, are four-way neck machines safe to use? And if so, do they have a place in programming? If you have access to one. Oh boy. Um, I would <laughs> I would probably say that every muscle that attaches. Um, and your spine is called, the, the spine is called the axial skeleton. The all the extremities are called the appendicular skeleton. When we look at the the muscles that attach to the spine, those that you would use and engage in a four way neck press, they are they're more stabilizers than prime movers. Now they're they're wicked strong. We've seen wrestlers do neck bridges and all kinds of things, but you don't really necessarily need to train these muscles concentrically. Believe it or not, holding your neck in a good position while you're doing a deadlift or a press is excellent stabilization work for the neck, and you don't have to go concentric. Uh, we've seen the same thing with the, the abdominal studies. You can, you can make your TA and obliques unbelievably strong and resilient without really bending or twisting your spine, just making them not let your spine bend or twist. So, you know, as a therapist, if somebody's, you know, doing that for, for neck strength, unless your sport uh, has people trying to pull your, uh, screw your head off like the top of a fire hydrant, I would say that, that the extra strength you think you're getting with that four-way press could easily end by really owning that shoulder strength and not letting the neck get in compromising positions in the first place. Yeah, I I think oh. one of the questions that may get left out um and this is one of the things that frustrates Gray, I know, is that, you know, it's it's fine to debate exercise, but who are we placing that exercise on? That's, you know, what are they bringing to that exercise? If we're talking about, and I don't I don't particularly like the four-way neck machine. I, I think I agree with Gray. I think there's some isometric um, exercises and other ways to accomplish that uh, sort of neck strengthening. But... Um, you, you got to know why and what you're trying to achieve by putting somebody on a machine like that and then uh, run your risk-benefit ratios and all that stuff and just be sure that you're putting the putting that exercise on the right person. Yeah, have you ever seen the neck of an Olympic shot putter or discus thrower? A, a lot of them have never done a four-way neck machine, and it looks like a tree trunk with a golf ball on it. I mean, that's, you know, so you can you can... <laughs> You can really get a, a pretty good neck out of just really making sure. I mean, shot putters and discus throwers 
um, as as lifters go, really get strong without compromising or losing a lot of their shoulder or chief spine mobility. And those muscles around the neck and shoulders just thicken right up because they're really they're strong and they're using a lot of range of motion. Okay, the next couple are kind of uh, they're on bodybuilding, and I'm just gonna. We got one from Glenn Draven, and I think his will be answered through Dwayne Rath from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, bodybuilders are often chided for being nothing more than walking statues. Uh, would it be possible to build the ultimate physique within your own unique biomechanical and physiological framework and still include enough work that would help to maintain as much athleticism and fluid movement as possible? This re- question relates more t- so to the functioning well in life in general than it does some misguided attempt to balance bodybuilding with with athletics. That said, I often hear people saying the general public should train like athletes, but many are but many are most interested in aesthetics. So I'm interested in attempting to keeping balance function as optimal as possible, um, and building the best physique physique possible as the two target goals, uh, two which are often said to be diametrically opposed. Wow, good luck with that one. We got a favorite. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think may, perhaps a, a somewhat short answer is focus on the movement first, because once you start isolating out pieces and parts, and you become a collection of pieces and parts instead of an integrated whole, it's a lot e- harder to go backwards into movement and function. So if you start with a movement baseline like the FMS and you know where your where your movement baseline was, you go on a bodybuilding routine for a while, get rescreened, and you've got three different asymmetries, and you've dropped four, four points on your movement screen, we can tell you right away that that program didn't do, do you any favors as far as your overall base movement and function. And so some of it boils down to having a consistent baseline with which to maintain and judge your movement quality. From a from an aesthetics versus performance standpoint, or an aesthetics versus function standpoint, um, I'm certainly a big fan of being as strong as possible, as long as you don't lose any movement quality, and that's that can be hard to achieve, uh, just because you you do run into a situation where, hey, you might love, love bench pressing, but your shoulder mobility goes asymmetrical and drops two points <laughs> every time you start benching you might want to reevaluate your relationship with that exercise. Um, Unless you're a competitive power lifter or you um, need armor plating, such as in football and some other situations, you you might choose another method uh, or find evaluate your form on that exercise. So as an FMS guy, I default back to what's your movement baseline? How are you going to judge changes in your function? Because more than likely, what what people will default to is performance testing. Well, my 40 went down, or my vertical went up, or you know the T test, and well, those are all performance measures. And performance doesn't equal function. Those are really two different things, and it's a bitter pill um, to realize that a high-performing individual can be one of the most dysfunctional individuals walking in the room. Those two things are not connected. 
That's such an interesting point. And I, you know, as I heard you talk about that, I was just going to ask if either of you guys are watching the NFL Combines on NFL Channel. I was just. I there. believe. I was about to say. <laughs> We're just there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just wonder, do, do you, as aficionados of, of good quality human movement, when you see these 43-and-a-half-inch vertical jumps and 11-foot standing long jumps, are you seeing guys doing numbers like that with uh, with uh, imbalances or dysfunctions that you can kind of see through, uh, uh, through your experience, or are, are these guys completely uh, well-functioning, or to what degree do you see these guys performing at a high level like that despite having it's issues? That- it absolutely blows your mind. It's exactly what Brett said. We can have guys with great movement screens and, and, and poor performance, and we can have the opposite. And, and so what we've started saying is if you want to know how somebody performs, test their performance. Now, just right. know that you didn't test their durability. You didn't test their longevity. You didn't test their, their um, day after day after day showing up with the exact same consistency. But you did take a snapshot of their performance. So a 43-inch vertical leap is undisputed. That's a lot of freaking power. But yeah. is, a G, is a GM going to spend $16 million on that? Not if the kid can't squat and not if his hips are asymmetrical and definitely not if he's got shoulder impingement. That's a, that's a different thing. And just so you know, uh, it wasn't on TV, but this is the first year that they across the board – uh, started looking at movement screening in the NFL, and they did it right after the medical station. And, you know, I don't know if it'll, it'll stay or not, but it's going to be interesting to look at that data. Uh, we've got quite a few teams doing it, and, and we say, you know, you, are, you already have performance tests. We already know who the best athlete in the room is at athletic stuff. But if you're going to ask me who's a good six-year bet, I'm going to pick the guy with respectable performance numbers and no big issues. You take uh, two guys at the Colts right now, Dallas Clark and um, Bob Sanders, completely different built athletes. Uh, Bob, Bob's probably right where we were talking that vertical leap's going to be, and he's got a 21, a perfect score on the movement screen. Um, I know some ballerinas that can't do that. So you don't have to lose any of that uh, mobility to have symmetry. Bob Sanders could eat chicken breast for two weeks and walk out on the stage with some oil and probably beat most bodybuilders because he's just chiseled that way and he doesn't isolate. And so the, the mantra that you got to start saying is, are my movements a uh, subordinate of my muscles or are my muscles subordinate to my movements? Because if you train your movements, your muscles will come in tow and they will do it. Now, can I get the hypertrophy in, in small groups a little bit quicker? Yeah. But many times when I do that, you lose something. And, and I, my message to bodybuilders when I do consult with them is like, say, listen, if, if I take an inch of hypertrophy off your chest but add 20 degrees to your T-spine rotation, you will be able to pose better than the guy standing next to you and create the optical illusion that you're bigger. If you look at some of Arnold's poses, he was quite a bit more flexible and than most of the people. So he'd turn his hips to the side, then turn his chest to you, and it would look like his waist was about as big as somebody's wrist. And today's guy is thicker through the, through the chest than Arnold was, but can't turn half as far because they didn't put their leg up on the yoga bar and do some of the stretches. And so, you know, the best, the, the whole part of this, you know, moving statue debate is you're not really a moving statue. The guy who really brings the symmetry and the best posing routine is there and you give me a good movement screen 
and you can do some optical illusions and some shadows with your mobility that other people can't do, giving the illusion that you have greater hypertrophy. So, you know, it, there's still a good argument, even though we wouldn't consider the, 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 the bodybuilding probably the most functional platform, if you maintain your movement screen, you still walk out on the stage a better athlete. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the thing I'd get at is, I mean, the argument he's placing is that most people want are, are most interested in the athletics uh, and not athletes. But my, my, my question would be, what athletes are you looking at that aren't aesthetically pleasing, especially nowadays? I mean, like you were talking about the combines and whatnot. I mean, those guys and and, and girls and other sports and whatnot are walking around four or five hundred times percent better looking than that general population. And and they're not trying to look better; they're trying to perform well. So, I mean, <laughs> this is this. It's somewhat of a diversion or a side topic. But if you look at um, boxers, dancers, yeah. martial artists, these are people for whom training skill um, and learning their art is primary. They get a workout by by coincidence. It's incidental. Yes. They didn't they didn't mean to achieve the dancer's body, but you dance for eight hours a day and you pound yourself into the ballet floor and use the ballet bar consistently, guess what? You get yes. a dancer's body. And so a lot of the like you're saying, a lot of the athletes and the people that would be held up as wow, look yeah. at that. They didn't get there because they wanted to look aesthetic. They got there because they trained their art. Yeah. And so we've gotten very flipped um, in our perceptions of um, of um, what we should be looking for in our uh, training. Yeah, I mean, it's the old saying, you know, your form follows your function. If you can function exceptionally, you're going to look like you can. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I, that could be a that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Louis DeSalvo and Ottawa, Ontario. Um, some say physique competitors need more than simply being lean and doing anti-rotation, anti-side bending, anti-extension to build a stage-ready midsection. They often say some measure of dynamic flexion work or reverse crunch type movement are needed to hypertrophy of the, the abdominals at as much as they will allow. Can this population include a low volume of this work, something on the order of two to three sets, six to 12 less, perform two to three times, but never more than three times per week, or is this still a no-go, far too risky over the long term? Well, I would say, uh, I would say, well, go ahead. Well, I would take it in two directions. Um, number one is defining out and understanding that there's such a thing as reflex core stability that is primary, and then there's feed-forward core stability or feed-forward core activity, meaning there are high-tension abdominal drills like properly performed hanging leg raises or the uh, Yonda sit-up um, Actually, Pavel has a device to, to do the Yonda sit-up better than the Yonda sit-up. And so what we do in the movement screen and corrective exercise is we hammer home the message of reflex core stability. Did your anterior core turn on properly during your push-up? 
Can you resist rotation? Things of that nature. That has to be there first. Once you know you've got that, then hammering home feed forward high tension abdominal activities can only help you uh, in the end as long as you don't lose reflex core stability. So again, who are we putting this exercise on? Is this somebody who has their reflex core stability and is looking to add a little abdominal training? Or is this somebody who's looking to circumvent all of the um, reflex stability and just do some crunches? So and, and that, that's my I take on add, I can add one piece of utility to that. Uh, if, I, I agree with Brett. He, he said it perfectly. Get the stability first, put strength on top of that. Um, if, I think if you go to our website, functionalmovement.com, and go to uh, downloads or articles or whatever, there's four free articles uh, on the chop and lift, and Brett helped me edit that article. But basically, this is what Brett's talking about. It's going to get your reflex stability first. And I've I've used the chop and lift both in a tall kneeling situation, a half kneeling situation. I give you all the information you need to test yourself and train yourself like that. But what that's going to do is really, really tell me if you've got that stability. It's going to tell you if you've got that stability. So if you were to precede any of your crunching or twisting drills with some of that first, first of all, I'm going to be surprised if you've got anything left after that. And if you don't, you probably don't need to do it. And once you do, then um, head on to it. But these are kettlebell press. They're an unbelievably high neural load, meaning sometimes it takes more uh, energetics not to move than it does to move. And so really backloading that core and getting things firing with those chop and lift maneuvers, it's it's unbelievably taxing. And if you've got a little bit of a trunk strength left after that, then by all means you could lay some, some you know, concentric drills on top of that if you need the hypertrophy. Most of the time I think people have enough hypertrophy across the rectus, they just they just haven't got their fat down enough, and so you know, don't. It's easier to strip the fat off than it is to make those little little uh, six packs bug out anymore. So um, that's that. That would be the practical way I would train that. Hit those chop and lift maneuvers first. If you got something left, go ahead and uh, rip it out. If you don't, then then that's all you could do today anyway. Yeah. Um, got one more here. Uh, Josh in Phoenix, Arizona. At what age would you have a young athlete or, you know, just a young person in general start to perform the get-up? Well, uh, the the quick and easy answer that I usually give people is if they're competitive, if they're in Little League this or that, and you're asking them to compete, they're old enough to start doing basic <laughs> exercise um, because they're going to push themselves through more extreme range of motion and load. Because if you boil it down, let's take something as easy as running. Generally agreed upon figures are six times body weight, four to six times body weight, each foot contact when you run. 100-pound kid, 600 pounds of force. I'm thinking if they're running for exercise or in their sport, it's okay to have them go through a properly performed get-up or have them movement screened, or get their body weight exercise dialed in because they're already hammering their body with upwards of 600 pounds of force per step 
when they run. Um, I, I like to run the numbers like that for people because perspective gets lost. Um, we get afraid of 10-pound dumbbells, but we have no problem telling little Billy to go um, run, jump, and play on the soccer field. Yeah. So, a good a good rule of a good rule of thumb with a, a group of kids. Uh, if you don't have the background to conduct a full movement screen, there's a real neat little thing you could do. Give them a broom handle or a baseball bat. See if they can rock bottom that overhead squat. Heels flat. Uh, put their feet anywhere you want, but just really look for symmetry. Don't let those knees cave in. If they can keep that stick back up over their head, um, then you've you've cleared a lot of the the, the motion that they're going to need for the get-up. Next, check their motor control. And the way you do that is have them stand on one foot, stick the other leg way out behind them, and bend all the way over there and touch their toe and come back up without a loss of balance. And they got to do that on each side. Lastly, see if they can do a standing long jump the length of their body. And if they can do those three maneuvers, they are, they are definitely ready to, to start training um, and if you want to use a little weight or just want to use the get-up with no weight at all, I think you can even go to Target now and get a, a kettlebell that actually looks like a rubber medicine ball with a handle on it. That's but true. Too many, yeah, too many parents run right out and, and start doing weight training. And when I have a kid who can't touch a toe with the other leg floating in the air, can't run bottom a squat or even do a standing long jump, their, their body length, that child isn't ready for plyometrics or bounding or, or loading because their skeletal system and their muscular system hasn't developed the capacity. So the, the that uh, uh, standing long jump uh, length of their body, that's not mine. That's that's good old Vern Gambetta stuff from way back, and it used to be part of his plyometric continuum. But I, I use those three little tests. Um, and when you see issues there, just realize this child, even though they're young and may not have had any injuries, they're actually – their body's asking you for corrective strategy, not straight-on conditioning. Used correctly, the, the get-up can actually help you with that, but then don't be concerned about weight. Go into the get-up looking for those asymmetries because they've already shown you that they've got issues. So there's one of those steps that's going to catch them, and one of those steps is going to fix them. Good stuff. Well, Brett and Gray, I want to thank you very much for uh, spending time with us today. And for those of you, if, you, if you're joining us late, We've been talking about kettlebells from the ground up, which is available at dragondoor.com. And uh, I hope we can twist your arm into coming back sometime. Uh, well, we'd love Absolutely. to do it. I want to leave your listeners just one thing. In the product, we make reference to the naked getup, and Brett performs it. But that's a getup without weight. Don't have them be scared. So he has, he has clothes on, in other words. He does. He does. So it's, it's not a... It's not an yeah. R-rated thing. It's not PG-13. The kids can watch it. So oh, That's an important <laughs> distinction to make, and I'm glad you clarified that for us. <laughs> no worries, man. I'm well, glad thank, thanks for coming and joining us. Thank you, guys. And everybody Great being listening, here. we'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. Yes, sir. Thank you.